From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. This week, I speak with Judge Mark Holmes of the U.S. Tax Court. We are the froth on the sea. We are the head on the beer. We are the rotten wood at the edge of the forest. Judge Holmes completed his first 15-year term as a judge on the tax court, and his reappointment is currently pending before Congress. We discuss his unorthodox entry into tax law, how the tax overhaul could trigger a flood of procedural cases, and, of course, his quirky writing style. Thank you so much for joining us, Judge Holmes. Well, good to be here, Siri. You and your opinions have become pretty well-known in the tax and legal communities for the life and color you pour into them. Uh, You cited Mark Twain and made reference to Roman history and waxed poetic about the origin of Buffalo Wild Wings. (laughs) (laughs) So how is it that you develop your approach when thinking about expressing your judgments? Well, the most important thing is to try to get the law and the facts right in any opinion. And then uh, the question becomes, uh, can you make it a little bit light so that people might be willing to read it other than the parties involved? Uh, One of the great things about being a tax court judge is that you get the full parade of humanity before you. And so you get uh, so many different people in so many different walks of life, learn about so many different little industries you didn't even know existed before. Uh, And it's kind of fun to explain those to people. Why is it important for people other than the people involved in the case to be reading tax court judgments? Oh, it probably isn't, uh, but but (laughs) I do like to explain it. My audience, uh, in part, as I tell the law clerks, are uh, recent law school graduates clerking for the appellate courts who might have had only intro to tax. And so we have to explain things to them, try to make it as clear as possible to them. Uh, And then one of the things I hadn't thought much about before becoming a judge was that we also have so many of these cases that are S cases. They're not going on appeal. They are brought by people who are representing themselves in most cases. Uh, And it's important, I think, to try to explain to them why the law says what it says or why I'm reaching the result I am. Um, This can culminate in things like explain to somebody whose highest education was eighth grade what Mackers and Ackers was back in the 80s because it affected how he can take deductions for his business. Uh, (laughs) That can be a challenge for any law clerk to do the first draft. And certainly as we go through the drafting process, it becomes more of a challenge for me. Why do you think legal writing has gotten to be so dry? I don't want to say that it's boring, but it is very technical. We live in a technical area in tax, of course, so we do have our own vocabulary words that most people don't understand. Uh, But I don't think legal writing is as dry as it used to be. We all remember in law school reading cases from 100 years ago uh, that were very, extremely difficult to understand. Um, A lot of it due to the rules of common law pleading having its own vocabulary that no longer is with us. Many of the technical terms of admiralty or corporations or securities law before the modern era were just different. And so it's hard to translate that into modern English. Um, On the other hand, there has been a movement in legal writing. You see it in judges like Posner and Easterbrook, Ray Randolph, uh, my old boss, Alex Kaczynski, to write in what's called the informal style. And I think it makes it easier to explain things if you imagine somebody sitting in front of you who isn't adept in the field uh, and you're not writing to a form, but instead trying to explain it to somebody. Preaching to the choir here. (laughs) Of course, as a journalist, you understand the importance of the lead. And so there is always that in these uh, opinions that deal with 
Yeah, relatively routine things like substantiation. You don't want to bury the lead. You want to have a little bit of fun to draw the reader in. So, yes, buffalo wings, but it was, in the end, a material participation case, not reported <laughs> income. So, yeah. Speaking of fun, you once referenced a Roman emperor. In a court case involving taxed advantage transactions, you wrote, I'm no Caligula. The question was whether you could put two tax advantage transactions together uh, and this is actually a case that's currently on appeal, so I can't get into the merits too much. Uh, but the first, second, and sixth circuits have ruled one way, and the case is now before the ninth circuit. And the serious question there is whether something that meets the textual requirements of the code is good enough, or whether the Congress has to express its purpose to allow a particular tax advantage to flow through to the taxpayer. And that's part of the very deep controversy between purposivists and uh, textualists in the law generally, and not just in tax law. That's really interesting, this idea that purpose of law and text of law can come to be at such odds. And it seems like this is something we could be seeing increasingly as cases start coming out of the tax overhaul. There is no doubt that it will. Uh, so often what Congress agrees on, of course, is just the text. That's what the president signs. That's what gets through both houses of Congress. The intention of Congress is expressed in a variety of materials, uh, some of greater or lesser reliability, as you can imagine. Um, but there is this broader legal question that's not just limited to tax law. Should a judge look only to the text against the background uh, rules of interpretation of confusing texts, or should he look to see what Congress intended that text to mean? Uh, sometimes these are contradictory. Um, people will try to manipulate the legislative history. People will try to manipulate floor debates, whether before or after enactment, saying that something's in the law that isn't in an effort to alter the judge's view of the purpose of that law. And so... Uh, the, the modern counter-revolution, the modern counter-textualist revolution is to look at the text of the code, uh, view it against background canons of construction um, as set forth in that wonderful book by um, the late Justice Scalia and Brian Garner and try to come up with the best reading of an ambiguous text, uh, quite apart from whether there's some evidence of the intention of somebody, whether staff or congressman, uh, particular congressman, as to what the corporate body of Congress together uh, meant by something. How important is it to find that balance between intent and text? Well, I'm a textualist, so I would say that we don't <laughs> worry about intent that much. Hmm. Uh, there is a, a problem more generally in law of the shifting of words over time. I think that matters less in tax than other areas. Uh, there is, at the very beginning of income tax law, the question of what income is, of course. We all learned that in the first week of tax one. But apart from that, in tax law, the law is amended so often and it's subject to so much guidance in the form of regulations uh, and commentary that the problem of drift over time, which is extremely important in something like constitutional law, isn't that important, I think, in tax law. Is that why tax law can be so technical? I think so. Um, you know, uh, there is so much tax law compared to other forms of statutory and administrative law. There's relatively little room for common law development in tax compared to other areas. Uh, and yet I still see it pop up. You know, what is fraudulent intent? We have uh, a million different factors to look at there. We're still looking at the distinction between employee and independent contractor using 
what amounts to a common law approach. We have 26 factors or whatever it is. Uh, but you actually look to analogize it to other cases that have already been decided. And that's classic common law reasoning. But there's less of that in tax than there is in other areas, I think. There's a trend of procedural questions coming out of cases like Altera and Grave. And these sort of appeared to be footfalls that taxpayers are using to win cases in tax court. Are we going to continue seeing more of this, an uptick in taxpayers seizing on technicalities? Uh, there are two kinds of technicalities here. One is the Altera technicality, uh, which is something went wrong in the process of promulgating a regulation, or at least a majority of us in tax court thought. So the Ninth Circuit disagreed. Those kind of challenges based on the Administrative Procedure Act are going to be extraordinarily common, I think, with the new TCJA, in large part because it changed so very much and it calls on so many new regulations to be promulgated. At the same time, uh, my good friend Kristen Hickman, the professor at University of Minnesota who was working at the office of OIRA, I, I know the abbreviation better than I do its meaning, uh, is extremely involved in making sure that the Treasury Department doesn't make those kind of footfalls and understands the requirements as a matter of general administrative law to make sure that tax regulations will stick if they are challenged. So there will be this, this balancing. There clearly is a new understanding that the APA has to be complied with by tax lawyers as well as by other people who deal with different areas of administrative law. Hmm. And at the same time, the volume of regulations that are new <laughs> are, is going to explode uh, and come to tax court just at the time that people are aware of the need of procedural regularity as well as substantive merit in the promulgation of regulations. Now, the Grave case was a little bit different. That did not involve a regulation so much as it did straight statutory construction. Hmm. Uh, and when uh, the tax court got reversed by the Second Circuit, we, we decided in Grave to go along with the Second Circuit on the meaning of um, initial determination of assessment and what it means to have the immediate supervisor approve a penalty in writing. Now, we have different views about that, as we expressed, and that's very much a live issue, so I won't talk about any specific examples. But those who have read my concurring opinion in Grave know that there are an enormous number of theoretical possibilities where the IRS can now screw up in determining a penalty which more or less clearly should be determined against a particular taxpayer. Hmm. And so those are going to come to court in all their variations in a number of different contexts. Uh, whether it will arise in collection due process or deficiency proceedings or perhaps somewhere else, who knows? As the IRS leans more on automation and technology, will collection due process and deficiency proceedings change? And how will the statute need to keep up with ensuring nothing can kind of be brought up there that would then be used in tax courts? Well, there, there are a number of different ways that I've seen automation uh, affect the process. One is there are an enormous number of notices of deficiency that appear not to have been reviewed by humans. They're generated by computers based on mm. either matching or um, some other form of third-party information. Taxpayers who get these are sometimes completely befuddled. They may be victims of identity theft. There's a rare calendar mm. that doesn't have somebody who says, I have no idea what this income is, but it is my social security number. Now, Typically what happens is those cases will go away when a human finally looks at it. But it would be better if humans could look at it earlier in the process. 
Uh, I think that many of the IRS agents in some parts of the country, at least, are under enormous pressure to close things out, to get things moving along. I will occasionally come across cases where somebody says, you know, I wanted to have an audit, but I, my kid was sick that day and they wouldn't reschedule it. The next thing I knew, I got my 90-day letter. I have to come to tax court. Those cases almost always go away again once a human looks at them. But it might be better if a human looked at it earlier in the process. Um, in the end, uh, that doesn't burden me that much. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, a cost to the taxpayer and it takes more time for the taxpayer when something like that happens. Uh, as to other issues that you can see foresee from automation, um, there is that grave issue that you just mentioned where there's an exception to the requirement of this approval by the immediate supervisor in writing for any penalty that's calculated by electronic means. What will that mean uh, mm. in the current era where the IRS is automating more and more and presumably programming its computers to either determine penalties or determine the applicability of penalties based on an algorithm. Is that a means of electronic computation? Or is it uh, an initial determination of a penalty that no human has looked at and so invalid? And I have no idea. But I wouldn't be surprised if that came to tax court, too. It's very interesting that you mention the need for human people to be looking at deficiencies and collections in order to validate them. It seems like when talking about something as technical as tax law, that would be ripe for automation. Well, certainly in some cases where it's just matching of third-party information, it is. I mean, we see that all the time. Mm. Um, when it comes to, for instance, two people taking the tax benefits of having a minor child, uh, you can tell that it's the same child because he has a Social Security number. But if the parents are separated or divorced or something, or there are more than one person claiming it, you're going to end up with two cases at some point as both parents' uh, attempts to get those tax benefits are denied by the IRS until somebody sorts it out. So yeah, there will be lots and lots of matching. There already is lots and lots of matching. The problem is that in some small percentage of those matching cases, the result will be crazy. You know, it wasn't my income because somebody had my social security number. There was a mistranscription of a social security number. A third party misclassified me and sent something off to me that shouldn't have gone to me but to somebody else. And those are the cases where it would be helpful to have a human look at it quickly rather than at the end of filing your, paying your $60 and filing your tax court petition. Between 75 and 80 percent of tax court cases are pro se, meaning taxpayers are representing themselves instead of being represented by a lawyer. What is the tax court doing in order to facilitate that process for individuals representing themselves? There has been a lot of uh, movement um, on the part of the tax court. All the judges in my 16 years there recognized that once we have such a large percentage of the cases being pro se, we need to help people understand the process. So over time, uh, our, a committee of judges took it upon themselves, volunteering to do so, to try to come up with plain language parts of our website on what's a summary judgment motion? How can you respond to it, for instance? Uh, we also have greatly expanded the low-income taxpayer clinics who represent people uh, free of charge at calendar calls. Uh, we have people who will show up at calendar calls uh, and offer to represent taxpayers. We recently put out for comment, and I think we just promulgated 
uh, limited representation rules, which will allow private sector lawyers to represent somebody that day or for the stipulation process without having to take them on as a general client, uh, agreeing to represent them on the basis of a 15-minute interview at the calendar call all the way through appeal to a circuit court, should that be necessary. So the ability to represent somebody on a limited basis should expand the pool of volunteers. And since most cases settle, especially when pro se taxpayers are there because they don't understand something and they want a lawyer to explain it to them, that will be, I think, of great help uh, in helping taxpayers maneuver and navigate through the system. How would you characterize the tax court's role in the tax law ecosystem? (laughs) (laughs) We're... I suppose that that we're the scavengers, <laughs> the the dung beetles, the fungus, the those who break down what's left over at the end of the process. Because after all, the government collects trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Hmm. Uh, the withholding tax system and the matching uh, of information from third parties for income means that most people uh, reduce their gross income to their net income almost without noticing it via withholding. Uh, Those who have independent sources of income know that the IRS has the information and they voluntarily disclose it. So as I said, trillions and trillions of dollars are collected by the system generally. At any one point, tax court has a few tens of billions of dollars. We are the froth on the sea. We are the head on the beer. We are the rotten wood at the edge of the forest. We're the part of the ecosystem that's on the margin. It's important to break things down and to provide new nutrient-rich soil. But here you can see my tendency to elaborate on metaphors reaches very quickly a dead end. Uh, (laughs) I've I've occasionally said that tax law is a system which could, from an outsider's perspective, be viewed as a way to keep very, very smart people occupied so they don't get up to mischief elsewhere. Uh, In the end, the system goes because of withholding and because of third-party matching and because most Americans don't spend their lives trying to figure out a way of how to cheat the tax system. Uh, So the system goes by itself, but at the margins, there are going to be uh, a need for clarification of law, a need for, uh, in the end, some enforcement by the state of the obligations of people to pay their taxes, and that's where the tax court comes in. But it's on the margins. It's not central to the system. That was a very poetic way to <laughs> to describe the tax court. And tax law seems a sort of unlikely place for this sort of literary gusto. <laughs> so how did you get into tax law in the first place? Well, as, as some of my colleagues will note, uh, I'm not a real tax lawyer, and I approach the code on a need-to-know basis. What's the <laughs> other one? It's that Uh, I'm learning the code one section at a time. (laughs) To some degree, this is true. I was a general litigator uh, when I got out of law school. I had one tax course in law school. Uh, But then the the brief version of the story is that my mom and dad got audited by the IRS, reminded me of how much money they had spent on my education, and suggested that I take part of my summer vacation (laughs) to represent them in audit. The years ground on, the audit expanded, and before I knew it, I was arguing a case on behalf of mom and dad and me in the Second Circuit uh, on a $7,500 tax question. Uh, That meant that when the Clinton administration was reelected and I had to find a job in the private sector, uh, I was put into a litigation group at a, a firm in Washington, and my writing sample, being a Second Circuit brief, I came to the notice of the head of the tax 
uh, head of the litigation group, uh, who, when asked by the tax group for reinforcements on some tax litigation, said, I have no idea if he's any good. But his writing sample was a tax case in the Second Circuit. <laughs> <laughs> and so I became and less a general litigator and more of a tax litigator. Uh, and that led to my being eligible for appointment to the DOJ and ultimately tax court. But I'm, you know, I don't have an LLM in tax. Uh, I freely admit my, I hope that where I can add value to tax law is by remembering uh, developments in the outside tax world, whether it's administrative law or the rules of pleading uh, or the use of expert witness testimony or anything else that tax lawyers might not think about. Uh, but that a more generalist person might see why is tax law going off in a different direction from that of the general flow of law and wonder why and ask those questions. And maybe, maybe, as we said at the University of Chicago in our first year, the seamless web of the law will be woven a bit more tightly as a result. You were first nominated to the tax court in 2003 by then-President George W. Bush, and in the spring of last year, you were renominated for the tax court. Why do you want to stay at the tax court for another 15 years? And is there any interesting law that you've got your eye on? Uh, interesting law? <laughs> this is tax law we're talking about, sir. <laughs> no, it's being a judge is a wonderful thing. As I said, one of the unexpected joys is that you do get to see this parade of humanity uh, before you. Uh, when I was in the private sector, it was representing large corporations uh, in various tax jurisdictions, whether it was claims court or district courts or tax court. Uh, but as a tax court judge, you get to see an enormous, enormous variety of uh, humans, and they have to deal with it every year. Uh, even among the poor uh, part of the American population, because so much of tax law now is wound up with refundable tax credits for taxes that were unpaid, we end up with those kind of questions, too. And it's always a challenge to explain to people when they might come to court for only a few times in their life, but those of us who are judges deal with it all the time, to try to help them through the system. Uh, that's kind of gratifying. Uh, there are also, at the high end of uh, cases, where there's a lot of money at stake and you get extremely good lawyers, just to see the craft of law being practiced at the very, very best. Uh, levels, both by the government and by the private sector. And that's kind of a, it's a weird joy for a judge, but it's a, it's a, it's a real one uh, to see somebody do really well on a cross-examination, uh, to see somebody try a case efficiently. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a craft, but it's a craft which, when it's well done, is one that should be appreciated. And I very much appreciate the opportunity to see that happening uh, for the last 15 years and hope the next 15 as well. The Michael Jackson estate case is in your hands at the moment. And one of the central questions at the heart of that case is how to assess his assets at the time of his death. Do you think that this could be a definitive case? Or do you think that there will be increasing questions about post-modem evaluations of wealth, especially in this day and age of you know, new information coming out all the time about high-profile individuals that could potentially dent the perceived value of their assets. There are no definitive cases in any area of law. Uh, as a, a wonderful old judge said when I was a law clerk, we write on sand. So <laughs> no, the Michael Jackson case, nothing else will be definitive. There are a couple of novel issues in Michael Jackson, namely the valuation and the inclusion in the estate of uh, this right of publicity created by California as a matter of state law. 
there are various, very difficult issues of valuing intellectual property rights that people leave behind. Uh, whether to look at it synergistically uh, is if somebody had them all together uh, at all times or whether you look at them one at a time. Um, those kind of questions have been fully briefed. The briefing was finally done earlier this year. Uh, so it will be an interesting and very long opinion, I'm afraid. So I'll try to liven it up. I can only imagine. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today, Judge Holmes. Thank you, Siri. Good to be in touch. And here's some of the week's tax news. Global companies that pay tax in New Jersey got a break. The state rolled back its tax on guilty, a new category of a multinational company's foreign income created by the tax overhaul. But business groups are waiting to see if New Jersey will give as much of a break as they want, and legal challenges could still arise. And check out our Insights tab, where tax professionals weigh in on a variety of issues, including sports trading. Major League sports team owners fear that player trades could result in significant capital gain recognition because of recent changes in federal tax law. Two attorneys from Drinker, Biddle, and Reith walk through the IRS's plan to ease the fears of owners and fans. Find these headlines and more at news.bloombergtax.com. From Washington, I'm Siri Belusu. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Adam Allington. I'm the host of a new show from Bloomberg Environment called The Business of Bees. Here's what you need to know about it. We travel around the country talking to people at every corner of the honeybee ecosystem. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. In fact, commercial beekeeping is more important to farming than ever before. But bees are also under threat from pesticides and invasive pests and mysterious diseases. It's sort of like Christmas when you go to the hive in December and you open the lid. You just hope somebody's home. If you're interested in bees, too, I think you might like the show. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.